If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 10. We're just going to be looking at one passage today from Romans 10, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 12. Well, we close out our series today that we've called Explore God. And in this series, what we've been doing is looking at questions that people often have about Christianity. We've been joining other churches in the DFW area who are also looking at these same questions. I want to remind you about the website, exploregod.com. I think that will be helpful for you with your own questions that you might have about our faith. And also, whenever you are talking to a neighbor, co-worker, it's a great resource to know that you can go there. You can type in questions and find uh, various bits of information about how to deal with questions that people often have. Today, the question that we're wrestling with is, can I know God personally? Can I know God personally? And I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer to that question. In case you were wondering, the answer is yes. Absolutely, you can know God personally. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and see how the Bible builds that case that you and I may know God in a personal way. Well, in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. Now, it's important that you know a little bit of the context here. The Apostle Paul is talking about the nation of Israel. And so whenever he uses the word them, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation, he, in this context, is referring to the nation of Israel. Now, if you know a little bit about the book of Romans, you know in Romans chapter 8, we find ourselves in a bit of a struggle because Paul, talking to those of us who are believers, says, you have the Spirit at work within you, and yet you still struggle in the flesh, in your own earthliness. And so even though you know that you're supposed to do this, you often still struggle with doing the wrong thing. I know I have that struggle in my own life. I know that I'm supposed to be doing these things, but I often find myself doing things that I don't want to do. That's, That's what Paul said as well. Well, Paul says even the creation itself goes through the struggle. He says the creation is groaning, and he uses the imagery of a woman in labor, that the creation is groaning, longing to be released from the bondage because The world which was created by God is handcuffed, it's stained by sin, and it's longing for Jesus' return. So chapter 8 ends with a message of hope, that God is in control and that we can rest in the reality that God is in control. When he goes into chapter 9, he starts talking about Israel, and he goes through various choices, divine choices, that God has made throughout the Old Testament in working out his plan and ultimately leading to the birth of Jesus. And so Paul points out that it was through the nation of Israel that we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
It was through the nation of Israel that we know about the promises of God through His covenants, that we know about what worship to God looks like through the temple, through the tabernacle. It was through the nation of Israel that the promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and Moses and the nation, those promises flowed through Israel and ultimately Jesus Himself flowed through the nation of Israel. Yet here is the great irony. The irony is that though they were part of God's plan for thousands of years, when Jesus came, most of them missed God's plan. God was standing right in front of them. The fulfillment of all that they had longed for was right there, and yet they had missed it. Yet Paul says, I'm still praying. I'm praying to God for their salvation, that they will come to see that God has provided for them and it's right there in front of them. Whenever we came to Murphy Church, it was seven years ago, we came to Murphy Church and we were living in Denison, Texas beforehand. And we had the greatest timing. We came to this church right when the nation's economy collapsed. (laughs) And so we tried to sell our house there in the country, in Denison, right in the middle of a housing recession. Not the best timing, but it was God's timing. For two years, our house was on the market. And so for two years, we prayed, Lord, please sell this house. The church prayed with us, Lord, please sell the bank's houses. Bank's house, not houses, house. (laughs) Little kids were praying in the nursery, Lord, please sell Pastor Lash's house. And as the time went by, we began experiencing some financial strain, but we knew we were in God's will. And we would pray, Lord, we're where you want us to be. Why won't you sell the house? Well, as the time unfolded, we found that God provided in so many different ways. Uh, we were able, to, through some generosity, to go ahead and move down here and get established in the community after about a year. And we found that God had provided through the church and provided in ways that we never could have imagined. Well, finally, the house sold. And in the words of my friend George Tynes, who preached in the 945 service last week and sang in this service, plop, plop. Viz, viz, oh, what a relief it is. When the house sold, it was a source of great relief. And I was praying to God and thanking God. And the Holy Spirit began speaking to my heart. And he showed me something. He showed me that during that two-year journey, that I was often praying for the wrong thing. Not that it was wrong for me to pray that God would sell the house, because that was ultimately what we needed to happen But I also should have been praying and thanking God for His provision because for two years, God had been providing. For two years, even when we were wanting God to do something, God was doing something. He was taking care of us, and He was providing for us in ways that we could have never imagined. Now, here's my point. Sometimes we miss out on what God is doing because we are so busy telling God what we think He should be doing. Has that ever happened to you? And sadly, most of Israel rejected Christ 
they missed the whole point of what God was doing because in their mind, they had a political Messiah who would overthrow Rome and they missed out on what God was doing right in front of them because they were so consumed with what they thought God should be doing. But even though they messed up, and how many of you can relate to messing up? Anybody in the room today relate to messing up? I know I can. Even though they have messed up, Paul says, my prayer for them is for their salvation. Now salvation, that's an interesting word. It's a word that we use in church frequently. But what does it mean to be saved? Or to put it another way, what are we saved from? Well, we're saved from ourselves. I've done wrong. I will do wrong. I am doing wrong right now. And the same thing is true in your life. You've done wrong. You will do wrong. And some of you are doing wrong right now, like checking your email or your Facebook account during the middle of the sermon, okay? It's okay to have your Bible out, but put the other stuff up. It's not, not that long. I'm saved from the things that I've done wrong in the past, present, and future. When we talk about salvation, we are saved from the grip of evil. If you look around in our world, evil abounds. There's evil everywhere. And God saves us from the grip that evil has on, has on us so that we might live in righteousness and do the things that God has taught us in Scripture. That's part of your salvation is that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow God and to be like Christ in your own life. And then we're saved from death, not physical death unless the Lord were to return, but we are saved from spiritual death so that we might live eternally with God in heaven. That's all part of our salvation. Now, there's a couple of misconceptions that people often have about knowing God personally. And the first misconception that people often have, and and you'll hear this a lot, is that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you are what? Sincere, right? Just be sincere. It doesn't matter the details. All that God cares about is the sincerity of your heart. Well, in verse 2, Paul says, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The Hebrew people that he was talking about, they knew the Scriptures. They went to temple. They gave sacrifices. They considered themselves to be very religious people. They had zeal for God, but they didn't have the true knowledge of God that comes through Jesus Christ. You can be sincere about something, but not have genuine knowledge. A few years back, I became part of a world-renowned singing group. It's called Lash and the Paul Bears. You ever heard of them? Uh, we still have two staff members that are named Paul. At the time, we had three. And so we decided that on Easter Sunday, we were going to sing together. And we thought, we've got to come up with a name for our group. So we came up with Lash and the Paul Bears. And we became an Internet sensation. I mean, the, the day after we sang for the first time, there, there was a website that was, was put up. And we started getting fans on Facebook. People started posting videos. Before long, we had t-shirts made with Lash and the Paul. You go to the grocery store and see somebody in a Lash and the Paul Bears t-shirt. We actually had an autographed Lash and the Paul Bears t-shirt that auctioned for over a hundred dollars. 
I couldn't believe it. Now, here was the great part of the story is that the girl that bought it washed it, and all of her autographs faded from the T-shirt, so we had to sign it again for her. But we had, we had all sorts of things. I mean, we had videos, we had fans, we had website, we had a T-shirt. The one thing we didn't have was talent. I mean, we're barely tolerable. If we didn't have Paul Reed, we would be awful, you know? I mean, we were just barely tolerable, but we had a lot of zeal, but we didn't really have musical soundness. It's possible to hold a lot of sincere beliefs about God and be sincerely wrong, to not have knowledge. Now, here's a second misconception that people have. If I do the right things then I'll go to heaven. If I sow good karma, if I go to church and do the right things, then I'll go to heaven because my good works will outweigh my bad works. Look at verse 3. Because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. Now let me pause here. This is a fairly technical section of Scripture, but I'm going to walk you through it here, okay? Humankind's natural default when it comes to spiritual things is to, to reside in the area of what I can do. And so our natural default is to say, okay, I, if I do good things, then I will find the favor of God. If you were to design a world religion, then I, I can almost guarantee you that you would design it in such a way that in order for people to find the favor of God, they would have to do certain things. And if they went to church, if they gave, if they behaved correctly, then they would find the favor of God. And it, it makes sense from our human perspective because all those things are very measurable. They're very black and white. You either do it or you don't. It also allows for us to promote people and say, okay, you're, you're super in your faith because you do all these things. And so the natural default within humanity's thinking is that we, we go back to that and we try to take grace and turn it into something that we earn, something that we can measure, something that we can take pride in. And, and Paul is saying that's what happened here, that the, the Hebrews, they disregarded the righteousness from God and instead they established their own righteousness. Now, what they were doing is saying that I will, through my own established parameters, find the favor of God, and in doing that, they were not submitting themselves to God's righteousness because God said, you're not God, I am, and this is how I've laid it out. How did God lay it out? Well, in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. So what God says is that Christ is my plan, coming to me through Christ he is the true source of knowledge. He is the way. He is the life. You may have your own system of what you think will achieve righteousness, but the Scriptures say God's system is Christ. In verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. Now, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're called the Old Testament law. And in Romans, it often refers back to the law, not referring to the Constitution, but referring to those books of the Bible. And so Moses writes about the righteousness that is from 
the law. And the one who does these things, the one who follows all the commandments that are there, will live by the law. Now, the problem with that is that if you read the first few chapters of Romans, you discover that all sin and all fall short of the glory of God. So nobody can live up to the law. We can't live through the law of Moses because nobody can live up to God's perfect standard. So in verse 6, the Scriptures say, But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this, Do not say in your heart, Who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. The righteousness of law says, I will do things and I will live. The righteousness of faith says, God has done things so that I may live. So the one that embraces the righteousness of faith understands that if your salvation was completely up to you, you would fall short time and time again. You understand that you can't go up to heaven and script out the scene. You can't go to heaven and say, okay, here's how it's going to work. Jesus, you're going to become a baby, and you're going to go to Bethlehem and be born uh, with Mary there, and the shepherds are going to come, and then on December 25th, we're all going to join together, sing Silent Night, and drink eggnog in your honor. You can't go up to heaven and bring Jesus down. God had to do that. You can't go down into the abyss and say, all right, Jesus, you just, wrote, you just died on the cross. Now it's time for you to rise again. You can't bring Jesus out of the grave. That's a God thing. It is impossible for you to be good enough to work your way to heaven because God doesn't demand of you sincerity. He demands perfection, and perfection can only be found in Christ, so our only hope is found in Christ. In verse 8, Paul says, on the contrary, what does it say? The message, the message of good news, the message of the gospel, Paul says, is near you. It's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. The agnostic says, if there is a God, God is so distant, He's so ambiguous, that He cannot be known. The deist says that there is a God, and God created nature, and God established life, and he wrote within our hearts a moral code. And then he looked at his creation and he said, well, good luck with that. Hope it works out for you. But the Christian says, there is a God. And God created nature. And yes, he established life. And yes, God put down a moral code within the heart of humankind. But God has also brought himself near to us so that we might know him personally. The message is in your mouth. It's in your heart. It has been brought near to you. You say, well, how has God brought the message near to me? Well, through decisions that he made. If you go back and look at chapter 9 of the, of the book, you see that God has made sovereign decisions throughout history that brought the message near to us. Through Jesus, 
Jesus said, the Father and I are one. Whenever you see the Father, you see me. He's in me. I'm in him. And so whenever Jesus was brought near to us, the story of Bethlehem, whenever we see Jesus, we see God. Through the Holy Scripture, God has preserved what he has revealed. Now, we talked about this last week, the importance of the Bible. If you believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God, if you believe it to be God-breathed from the Holy Spirit, then whenever we speak the words of Scripture in our mouths, we speak the very words of God. The message of faith has been brought near. It's in our mouth. God has brought His message near through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in our heart and the Holy Spirit stirs us and guides us and leads us towards the things of God. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are not manufactured things that you dream up or work towards. They are works of the Spirit within you that empower you towards those things. John Wesley grew up one of 19 children. He wrote during his lifetime about 3,000 hymns, many of them that we still sing today. As a young man, he became an Anglican minister. He was ordained, and he was recognized as a brilliant young mind, so much so that he began teaching at Oxford University. He was very zealous for the Scriptures. He studied them methodically. And in fact, the denomination that flowed from the works of John Wesley today are called the Methodist. And it's a testimony to the fact that Wesley was so methodical in his study and understanding of Scripture and prayer. Well, he was 35 years old. He was already a minister in the church, a teacher of the Scriptures at Oxford, when he came to faith in Christ. It was that moment in his life when God brought the message near and stirred his heart in such a way that he responded. Wesley writes in his journal, in, this, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Shortly thereafter, Wesley penned the words of what is perhaps his most famous hymn. And he wrote in that song, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be 
that thou, my God, shouldest die for me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? And I wonder today, is the God of the universe warming your heart? Is the God of the universe stirring your heart in a way that only He can do? And deep inside your soul, behind the locked chambers of your past, the Holy Spirit of God has drawn near. And you can't really explain it, but you can feel it. And God is merging your past and your present and your future into this moment. Now, I want you to listen closely to these next words because these are not my words. These are words that the Holy Spirit of God has brought near to us. In verse 9, the Bible says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Now the scriptures say, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on Him. And notice verse 13. For everyone, everyone means you, it means me, everyone. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In answer to our question today, yes, you can indeed know God personally. He has no interest in being a detached deity. One of the most amazing things about God is as great and powerful, as holy as He is, He also draws near to us and says, Call me Father, and I will call you child. He says, Call upon me, lay down your own perceived righteousness, and pick up my righteousness in Christ. Or if you want to be my child, if you want to know my love, if you want to live forgiven, you must embrace the righteousness of Christ that comes through the cross and the resurrection that God has brought near to you. I want to invite you today to call on the name of the Lord. I want to invite you today to bring the guilt of your past and God will bring you forgiveness. I want to invite you to bring the bad choices of your life today. And God will bring you His wisdom. You bring the weight of your troubles today. And God will grant you His presence. You bring the grief of your heart today. And God brings you hope. You bring yourself to God today in faith. And God brings Himself to you today in grace. I want to invite you today to call on the name of the Lord.
Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please? Let's bow our heads together, and we're coming to a time in the service that we call the invitation. The musicians are going to come. They will lead us in a hymn, and we will sing with them and sing forth praises to God. In a few moments, we will give our offerings, and quickly we will be dismissed from the service. But right now, we stand with our heads bowed, and we stand in this moment. And I want to ask you a question, and I pray that you might block out distractions and answer this question honestly. Has there ever been a time in your life where you called on the name of the Lord for salvation? Now, I'm not asking you for your church resume. I'm not asking you if you've gone to church for a long time if you memorized a lot of Scripture growing up. I'm not asking you if your granddad was a preacher or all the different things that you've done connected to the church. I'm asking you, has there ever been a time when you personally called upon the name of the Lord? The Bible says that whenever we confess that Jesus is Lord, whenever we call upon His name in faith, that God brings to us salvation. And so I wonder, is this your moment where you need to call upon the name of Jesus? If this is your moment, seize it. And right now I invite you to call out to God. You might say, God, I'm a sinner. I confess that. And I ask for your forgiveness. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I trust in Him and Him alone. I believe that He is my Lord, He is my Savior, and I place myself in Him asking for your salvation. And I commit my life today to your power with your help to living my life for you. If today is the moment where you are calling upon the name of the Lord, please let me know. I'll be here at the front during this next hymn. You can come share with me. I'll be here after the service. You can come share with me, but please let me know. I want to encourage you and help you. I want to be a pastor for you because this is a significant moment in your life. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you have brought the gospel near to us. We pray, Father, that we might live forgiven, that we might experience the depths of your joy. Lord, help us to know what it is to have hope in you, a hope that transcends time. Help us, Father, to sing forth this hymn to you as a song of the soul. And I pray, Father, that as we give and live, that we might realize that We can never outgive you and that you have called us to live our one and only life in ways that brings honor to you. So help us, Lord, to lay down our lives, to pick up the cross, be able to say as Paul did, for me to live is Christ. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.